come before you now, and uh, we do pray for Elizabeth. We thank you for her uh, witness, her testimony, for her teaching. We thank you for the, the ability that you've given to her, and she has conveyed this message uh, many times throughout the summer. We thank you for that. And uh, Father, tonight, as uh, she's going to have some people there who desperately need to know Christ. And uh, so we just pray that somehow that uh, something might be said, that, uh, that you would just, just be with her and, and give her exactly the words to say. And uh, we pray for those two women. Uh, and Father, we ask that perhaps something is said in there tonight that they will see their own uh, need of a Savior Perhaps inquire for more information. Uh, just uh, be with uh, that class tonight and that group tonight as they travel around. That they will truly see the love of Christ even among all of us here. So maybe our walk and our talk is very important tonight. So just guide us right there and we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our walk and our talk is important all the time. All the time. So, uh, all right, now we're on. All right. Like I said, um, Monday and Tuesday, we, we were looking at the Word of God. Last night, we were looking at the Word of God and the idea of revelation and inspiration and, and how the Word of God came to us. If you were not here last night, we gave out some charts uh, and... and um, a little card of the poet of Mount Coverdale that uh, is very famous, and it's actually very famous among grace pastors across the, across the country and around the world, actually. Many, many pastors have it uh, in some way or another on their wall or somewhere because it really is talking about dispensational Bible study, right and dividing word of truth, even though Miles may never have put it into that language uh, or said that. That's really exactly what he was talking about. And, but I said this summer, we've actually been doing two things in our adult time. And that is, number one, we've been talking about the Word of God. We saw the video. And like I said, we talked about things constantly. The second thing we've been doing is something that is our, our belief, the Bible doctrines, and in my belief, is that what we are lacking, and I would say not so much here, or not here, uh, because this church is actively involved in the area of evangelism. And so, what do you need to know? Uh, what do you need to know? Well, okay, so some of this might be good, some of this might be helpful. But we've been talking about the idea of evangelism, sharing the gospel, how to share the gospel, what is the gospel? And, and I, I truly believe, even when you're talking about the gospel, that we must know, we must indeed know how to rightly divide the word of truth. Rightly divide the truth, even in the area of the gospel itself. And you can look at a passage. Look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, this is a, the uh, account, and, and uh, I always try to 
I always try to discipline myself not to use the account the, the word story. To me, Bible stories to me are fictional. This is not fictional. This is a literal account, historical account of something that happened. So, this uh, rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And you find the same thing in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. This is Luke's account of that same encounter. And in Luke chapter 18 and verse 18, uh, it says, And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me ask you a question. What is this young ruler asking Jesus? How to be saved, right? Um, and 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 I thought of something I was going to do, so I'm going to have to. I'll come back to this. I'm going to finish this, and then I'll come back. Something else, then we'll come back. But it says, and Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one that is God. And and so this young guy says, Now what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what must I do to be saved? Right? And and what does Jesus say? Look at verse 20. It says, Thou knowest the commandments. What's that? What's the commandment? The law. The law. So thou knowest the law. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and mother. So Jesus is asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is Jesus' response? Keep the law. Keep the law. Do the commandments. Do the commandments. And the young guy said, all these have I kept from my youth up. All these I have kept from my youth up. Well, of course, we know that's impossible. No one could do that, right? No one could keep the law, right? Wrong. Wrong. Do you think God would give them something to keep they couldn't keep? No, they kept the law. They kept the law. Not all of them, but there were those who did. And so when he says, I've done all that for my youth up, I take him at his word. Because it was possible to keep the law. You don't think it was possible to keep the law? Look at Luke chapter 1. <coughs> Luke chapter 1. You know, the Apostle Paul over in, Luke, in the book of Philippians says that he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. And, and, and when it came to his to uh, standing before God and the commandments, he kept the commandments blameless. The Pharisees were extremely strict walking. They prided themselves on that, which is really one of the reasons why it didn't count for them, because they did it out of a, out of the flesh. They didn't do it in faith. They did it in because that's what, oh, look at us. We're walking. We're walking. They're very good at it. But look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Who are these people? 
Anybody know? They're the parents of John the Baptist. They're the parents of John the Baptist. And look what it says in verse 6. And they were both righteous before God. How were they righteous before God? Walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord. What? What were they doing? What were they doing? They kept the law. They kept the law. Now, people sometimes don't say, where do they kept the law? How can you keep the law? Well, you remember the law said, thou shalt not, right? Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Everything was thou shalt not. But it also, the flip side of the coin said, but if you do, here's the sacrifice. And, and so, if they, they broke the law, well, now they're lawbreakers, right? But then they could do the sacrifice, and what did the sacrifice do for them? It covered over that sin, right, and brought them back into a standing before God. And, and, and that's really why, that's really why the high priest had to, not the high priest, that's really why the priests had to minister and stand daily accepting all the sacrifices that were being brought into them. Because they, every time, every day, they had to bring a sacrifice. So they had broken the law. Now we got to get back into standing. So here's two people who did it. So this young ruler says, "I've done all that. I've done all that." Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You have to keep the law. Well, I've done that. So Jesus then adds another tear to it, um, and he says, "Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him." Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. So now, okay, Jesus says, keep the law. Well, I've done that. Okay, that's fine. It's just one more thing you have to do. What is it? What is it? Sell all that you have, and give it to the poor. Now let me ask you, when you're working at the at the booth at the fair, or the farmers market, or wherever you are, and someone comes in and, and you're talking to them, and they, maybe they say to you, finally come to the point and say, "Well, what do I have to be saved? What do I have to do to be saved?" And all you have to do is tell them, "Well, you have to keep the law, keep the commandments, and you'll be all right." Oh, wait a minute, one more thing: sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. Now, wait a second. Remember WWJD? What would Jesus do? What did Jesus say? Right? What did Jesus say? Keep the law, sell all that thou hast, and give to the poor. And what did the young ruler do? He walked away. I'll keep the law, but I This rich young ruler wasn't ready to sell all that he had. And in really what he's talking about is, is, is give yourself totally over. Give yourself totally over. But is that the gospel today? No. no. But was that a gospel? Yes. Yes. And so therefore, if we're truly going to understand what the gospel is, if we're going to share the gospel, then we need to rightly divide the word of truth. We need to rightly divide the word of truth. Because we can go back and we can find several Gospels that are in the Scripture. 
But we better find out the one that God is using today. That God has today. Or we're following a false gospel. We have a, a famous, famous, famous radio and TV preacher who, who says, if you want to know how to be saved, read the Sermon on the Mount. Follow the Sermon on the Mount. Follow the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and we have what they call Lordship Salvation. You're not really saved until you make Christ Lord over absolutely every part of your life. So salvation is not a one-time deal. It's an ongoing process. As you, as you, uh, work and work and work and work and work, and you can stop doing this, stop doing that, stop doing this, make more of this, make more of this, make more of that, make more of that, make more of that. And hopefully by the time you die, he's Lord of everything. Now, is that the gospel today? Is that the gospel today? I'm not going to tell you who that guy is. But it rhymes with John MacArthur. <laughs> All right, so just in case you find something that rhymes with that, we'll know that is. So, <clears throat> we, just, we have to understand the gospel. Now, hold that thought. Because I want to stick in what I was going to stick in last night, and I didn't. Okay. Remember in the in the video on Monday when they talked about Joseph of Arimathea going to uh, Leona, wherever the island, remember the island name, and and he put money into this and he and he built the first church with the word Christian above ground. Okay, and that would be way back even in the time of Christ. All right, number one, number one, there's no real evidence of that. There's no real evidence of that. And that's what I appreciated when they used the word tradition says twice. So they, they covered that by saying, we don't really know what, if that's, that's actually true or not, but tradition has it in there. And there is a building. I mean, we saw the building, right? So there is a building. Uh, but we saw man on the moon, but he never went there. So anyway, anyway, uh, then there's the word Christian. The word Christian. And right away, what do we think of when we think of the word Christian? What do we think of? Believers today, correct? And we refer to ourselves as? Right? The only problem with that is that's a totally different word than is used in scripture. When the scripture uses the term Christian, they're not talking, it's not talking about us today. The word Christian in scripture is actually describing those who fell in line and accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel. As the anointed one, as the prophesied one, as the one that the prophets had spoken of. And they and they would follow him as their Messiah and as their king. And and that is a, in the word Christian appears three times in the word of God. Three times. And every time it's talking about true Jewish believers. True Jewish believers. It's not talking about us. Like so many other things over you know, hundreds of thousands of years has come to us, and now 
anybody who believes in Jesus, who believes in Christ, is now a Christian or a Christ follower. Uh, and so today we're talking about being a Christian. Uh, and, and actually today the word has lost a lot of its meaning. There are two words used in, in our language today that really have lost a lot of their meaning. Number one is Christian. It doesn't mean anything today. And we'll see that in a few moments here. The other one is evangelical. Evangelical has become evangelical. Uh, it, it's, it is whatever you want to be. And there's no set set statement of faith for evangelical. And it just goes, everybody's doctrinal statement is you know, loosely biblical. Well, I don't like that, so take that thing. And, uh, so, but anyway, I just wanted to say that as far as that word Christian is concerned, in the video and what we'll see in a few moments, the word Christian, as we use today, really has has nothing, no root in the scripture. And secondly, really doesn't mean much at all. Doesn't mean much at all today. When I, I ask people, are you a Christian? Oh, yes, I'm a Christian. What's that mean, really? What's that mean? That means they believe, they believe in Jesus. They believe in Jesus. Um, well, I'm going to insert it now because it just came to my mind that if I say I'll do it later, I won't. The gospel, and we're going to get to that, but what is the gospel today? It's a belief in what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So, I asked recently, I asked somebody if someone they knew was, was a believer. I don't know. They said, I don't know. He was raised in a church where traditionally the gospel is not preached, but he was raised in that church, and, and if he believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then, then uh, I'm sure he's, then he's saved. And I, I, I've been really thinking about that ways heavy on me in that have we gotten to the point where the acceptance of three words means the same? You understand what I'm saying? Is it, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in that. I believe that. But isn't that really just a historical fact? I'm, I'm, I'm putting my, my, I'm saying I believe you're telling me my entire eternity is based on the fact that if I if I accept the historical fact is true, is that is that really the gospel? No, no. Just because somebody believes that Jesus died and was buried and rose again doesn't mean they're that they're saved. What we're talking about is something that faith takes beyond the historical fact. I in my faith. I'm putting my faith and my trust in the fact that that God was on that cross dying in my place. I'm accepting that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And that God paid the price of my sin. And that God was buried and God rose again for my justification. And my faith and trust is not just in him. It's not saying I believe that he died, was buried, rose again. My, my salvation comes in that I put my faith and trust in that believing that was God doing that on my behalf. And, and um, so just, you know, and the answer was, well, I think he may have believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ. 
that's a very trite thing to hang your hat on. And and um, faith, faith is is worth where it is. It's, it's we're saved by faith uh, in in that in that act. But, but it's the faith in that act that saves us. And faith is not a not. It's just not an acceptance of a fact. Faith is something that deep within puts it just puts ourselves. It's it's illustrated, uh, and I I know I've shared this here before. Remember the story of the guy who put a wire across a ravine, and then on a given day a crowd gathered and he walked across the wire, and he turned around and came back across, and everybody clapped, and, and he went over and he had a tarp over uh, something here, he pulled it off, and in a wheelbarrow with a special wheel on it full of bricks. And he put that wheel on that wire and then he pushed it across and he brought it back across. And the crowd cried or clapped to him. And he said, now, how many of you believe that I can put this wheelbarrow on here and push it across and bring it back? Well, they all raised their hand. Why? They just seen him do it. What were they? They were putting their trust or their belief in what? And they store it back, right? There's no faith in that. I just saw it. Correct? But then what he did was he took the wheelbarrow and dumped out the bricks, put the wheel on the wheelbarrow, and said, now, if you believe I can do that, come on up here and get in the wheelbarrow. That's faith. That goes beyond just, I know the story. I believe in the story. Now I'm putting my faith and trust in the one who died for me. This where the salvation comes, not just in the acceptance of an historical fact. An historical fact. All right. So we're going to go through some things tonight, and tomorrow night, and the next night. Tonight really is going to lay a foundation for our soul winning 101. All right. Soul winning 101. So I'll get this out of the way here and uh, stand here. Soul winning 101. What is soul winning? What do we mean by that? What do you mean by that? That's God's plan for reaching the lost. God could have chosen anything, but he chose a plan to reach the lost. To reach the lost. When we talk about soul winning, the soul is the individual. That's the, the person, the, the real person deep down inside, our soul. Right? And, and uh, winning is really uh, just a word of, of saying we're bringing them to Christ. All right? And, and the fact of the matter is, one thing we have to always keep in mind is that nobody in this room, nobody in this room has ever saved anybody. Nobody in this room has ever saved anybody, nor will you ever save anybody. Okay? And I'm talking on a spiritual level. I mean, you can jump in the water and pull out the ground first, right? But... I'm talking on a spiritual level. Nobody here has ever saved anybody. So far this summer, we have seen 46 kids come to Christ at Family Bible School. Susan and I have never saved one of them. Okay, not one of them. Um, what we are called upon to do, all we are called upon to do is to share the gospel. Share the gospel. Many years ago, as we started our... our um, Prison sentence during vacation Bible school. I think we got twenty to life. 
<laughs> but anyway, as we started uh, on this, uh, we're in our 19th year. So uh, when we started that, when we have the first night of Bible school, and we would have the staff come together afterwards, and, and we'd say, the, kid, the person who was doing the one-on-one with the kid, and they'd say, well, I had uh, one saint tonight, or two saints and I say to the people, now your Bible school is a success because two people came to Christ. And I said that for the first few years, and then it dawned on me one night, that's not true. That's not true. The Bible school is a success, is a success when we tell the first kid about Jesus Christ. And, and on any given night, you may have two kids who actually make a decision but you might have three, four, five others who don't. But they've all heard the gospel. And our job is to share the gospel. That's our job. God does the same. God does the same. You can give, you can give a, a young person or an older person the opportunity to make that decision. But the bottom line is, is it's God who does the same. It's not us. And all we are called upon to do is share the gospel. That's it. If we are faithful in sharing the gospel, we have done our job. We've done our job. And so the important thing is, is to understand, we are in, I, I guess I can use the term, we are in a partnership with God. We do the telling. He does the saving. We do the telling. He does the saving. And when we're talking about that, uh, we ask ourselves, whose job is it to do soul winning? Whose job is it to do this evangelism? Whose job is it? We live in a day and age of real professionalism. Now, and see, again, I'm not, it may not fit here, but it fits in a lot of churches today. Uh, what I'm about to say is we live in a day and age of professionalism. So, if you're you have a leaky pipe, who do you call? You call a plumber? Yeah. <laughs> the last church we were at, I asked that question. They said, you have a leaky roof for a plumbing. Who do you call? Jay? <laughs> you have, a, you have a, a, a leaky roof. Who do you call? Jay? But you have a leaky plumbing, so you call a professional. If you have a leaky roof, you call a roofer, right? Years ago, years ago, I'm doing this down in Alabama, and I said, you have a leaky roof, who are you going to call? The lady says, the plumber! (laughs) (laughs) You've got more problems than a leaky roof. (laughs) But but listen, so so here, we have that. So you're going to call the so, so if somebody needs to get saved, who are you going to call? You're going to call the preacher. You're going to call the preacher. And 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 after all, after all, that's why we pay him. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you that that way of thinking is prevalent in the church today. And the unfortunate thing is, what it is, is we all collect an offering, right? We collect an offering, and part of that offering goes to pay the preacher, right? 
And I can feel a lot better that we're paying the preacher because now I don't have to do anything. After all, that's why we pay the preacher. Right? That's why we pay the preacher. But yeah, I'm not sure that's exactly right. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't want to turn to it, it's right there. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ, till we all come in unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, under a perfect man, under a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4, 11 and 13. Now, as we think about that verse, we understand in verse 11, he gave some apostles and some prophets. Now, when Christ ascended back up on high, um, Soon after that, we would have the church, the body of Christ. Correct? Correct? And in, in, again, as Paul is writing to the, in the book of Ephesians, he's writing to the church, the body of Christ. Right? So, he says that he, and that's Christ, gave some apostles and some prophets. By their very definition, those are not in operation today. Uh, apostles and prophets, no one today qualifies for that. You go back in scripture and look at the qualifications of an apostle and a prophet, nobody's here. First of all, I don't think there's anybody living today who walked with Christ. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Did you walk with Christ? You're looking at me like, he's going to pick on me. <laughs> so, yeah. Then we have evangelists, and that's such a wide term. But pastor teacher, this is one office here. So we have four offices. By definition, these two have passed away. But he gave evangelists and the pastor teacher. Right? So obviously, just by nature, you say, why did he give those? You ask yourself the question, why? Why did he give those four offices? Well, when you look at verse 12, the very first word of verse 12 is four. Why did he give these? For the perfecting of the saints. Well, now, who's this? That's us. That's believers today, right? So, for the perfecting. What's the word perfecting mean? What's the word perfecting mean? Equipping, nurturing, nurturing. And when you think of it in the idea of nurturing, what you're thinking of is the fact that when, as, as a parent, you have, a, you have a child. You have a baby. When do you begin to train that baby? That child? What? Day one. Day one. You begin to train that child. And you train that child. And that training is nurturing that child along. Bringing that child along. Training that child up. As that child gets older, the training gets changes. Right? But, but you're training that child, training that child, training that child, so one day, one day, that child will get out. <laughs> when are you going to leave? <laughs> you know, sometimes it's 30. They're never going to leave. But you're training them so they can leave and stand on their own two feet. Correct? Correct. And, and that's exact that's exactly here. As 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 Christ gave these gifts to, 
gave these gifts, these offices. These offices, the evangelist, the pastor, teacher, was given for the nurturing, the training, the equipping of the saints. So now you ask yourself one question. Why? Why? What's the next word? For? For what? For the work of the ministry. Now that's one of those areas where I use the black highway. Because that doesn't belong to us, that belongs to who? That belongs to this guy. But no, 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 no. This guy's job is to train the saints to do the work of the ministry. And what's the work of the ministry? Well, Sherry, let's just, just say that for a night. Sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel. Who does that belong to? Now, does that alleviate him? No. Now, why? He's a saint. At least he ought to be. If he isn't, get rid of him. Get rid of him. Okay. He may not always be saintly, but he ought to be a saint. So, so the work of the pastor is to nurture, perfect, equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry. Why? Why? Well, we had that word for again, right? For the edifying of the body of Christ. Now that word edifying means to build up or expand. How do we build up or expand the body of Christ? Okay. I, yeah. Let's come back to that. We build up the body of Christ through the teaching of the pastor teachers, don't we? We build ourselves up in the Word of God through His teaching and His instruction, right? Which is all part of this right here, right? But the other thing is, as Terry said, this is expanding the body of Christ. What is that? That's growing the body of Christ. How do we do that? By the work of the ministry, by sharing the gospel, by seeing people come to Christ, by getting them saved, we grow the body of Christ. We grow. And people, when you get to that part, well, this is people, this is now growing the body of Christ, uh, and so this is numerical. Well, that's just numbers. Have you ever heard that? That's just numbers. You're just talking about numbers. You're just talking about numbers. Yeah, but you know what numbers are? Numbers are people. Numbers are people. Numbers are people who desperately need Jesus Christ. Who desperately need Jesus Christ. And he has given that job, the work of the ministry, to who? If you if you have been given the job of the work of the ministry tonight, raise your hand. Alright. If you had if you if you didn't raise your hand, you're fired. <laughs> What I find is interesting to me is here. How long do we carry this on? Till we all come in the unity of what? The faith. Now I would I would argue, I would argue that this little word here is, is an important word. The faith. It's not just faith. If it was faith, it might be what would just get everybody saved. But he said a unity of the faith 
And when Paul uses the word faith preceded by the definite article, the faith, he's not talking about just faith in Christ. He's talking about a body of truth. That statement of faith that we have. And so when you think about it in that order, he's talking about the word of God rightly divided, the, mess, the mystery message that he received. Our job is not only to get people saved, but our job is to introduce people to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, the faith. And when can when do we stop? When do we stop? <laughs> so we all are on the same page. But we're all on the same page. The knowledge of the Son of God of a perfect man, a wise man, a mature man, under the measure of the stature of Christ. So that job belongs to all of us. Well, let me, I should have been doing this all along. First uh, Corinthians 1 21b says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not by it, pleased God by the foolishness, I think I that, yeah, foolishness of preaching to save them that what? Believe. Believe what? Alright, believe the gospel. How do they hear the gospel? Through the foolishness of preaching. How could God have done something else? Could God have just sat people? But what did he choose? What did he choose? He chose us. He chose to use us. He chose to use us to share, to share the gospel, to change, to share what changed my life with others. Others. Knowing, knowing that as it changed my life, it can change their life. Romans 10, 14, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a... Oh, there, that gets us off the hook again. Right? But this is just someone telling them. Oh, it's somebody telling them. So how shall they call on him? And right before this, verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Right? And believe. And how are they going to believe if they have not even heard? And how shall how will they hear without a preaching? I think we mentioned that Sunday. Then we got your neighbor or whoever it is, loved ones, relatives, whoever it might be. We say, are they saved? No. No, I don't think they're saved. I don't think they know Christ. I don't think so. Have you told them? Because unless someone tells them, how are they going to know? How are they going to know? Man, by his very nature, is contrary to God. He's contrary to God. He's not going to wake up one morning and think, say, oh, hey, I think I need to trust in that gospel. I've never heard it, but I think it's out there, I'll believe it. No. Someone has someone has to share with them and tell them. So soul winning. Whose job is it? Ready? Doc. <laughs> and I never stand behind the screen because you got three fingers coming back. <laughs> no, soul winning is our job to tell. It's our job. Okay. Don't be so picky. 
Now, this is a this was a survey that was done uh, about eight years ago, I think it is. Eight or nine years ago. If a good friend or family member invited you to attend a church service with them, would you go? Just just out on the street asking people a question. Asking them this question, all right? If you were invited to church, would you go with them? Yes, 76% of the people said yes. Yes, I would go. 24% said no. All right? 76% of the people said, if you were asked, would you go to go to church, would you go? Yes. Yeah. In the past six months, have you been invited to church service by a friend or family member? Yes. 30%. No. 70%. 76% of the people said, I would go if someone invites me. But the majority of them said, no one's ever asked. No one's ever asked. And, and this is a family member or a friend. And, you know, often people say, those are the hardest ones to reach. Why? We're friends, we're family. I don't want to interrupt that friendship. You know? The fact of the matter is it's family. I don't want to bring strife to the family. Oh, okay. Aunt Mary can go to hell. You don't care. Isn't that true? Got it? I'm going to risk a relationship with Aunt Mary. Aunt Mary can go to hell. I'm that little kid right here. Well, the preacher said it. <laughs> oh, 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 that's what? That's the first word. <laughs> no, it's hello. <laughs> Primary hindrance to the gospel. The Pew Research Center, and, and a lot of this next is based on a study. They, they did a study, and it was in the Grand Rapids Press one Sunday morning, uh, probably 2005 or six. I read it, right after we had moved back to Grand Rapids. And it, it, the question was, the, the, the headline was, so I think it was 34% of Christians, the nation of 10 Christians, believe there's a salvation in a faith other than their own. And I thought, how is that? Let me ask, let's do a poll here tonight. How many of you believe there's a salvation in a faith other than the one you have in Christ? Raise your hand. Wow, you're pretty narrow-minded folks. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how would anybody answer that? So, so, I contacted the Pew Research Group, asked them about that survey, who conducted that survey, and then I emailed that person a question. Would you please give me your definition of a Christian? Please give me your definition of a Christian, all right? So, let's just look at this. And this is the name of the study. It was 2015, so is that seven, eight years ago? Seven years ago. America's Changing Religion. I think they do it every 10 years, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a study like that. You can buy it, and I bought this one. It's about like that. But anyway, very interesting. But, but here's the thing. Religion in America. And this is hindrances to sharing the gospel. Religion in America, 70.6%. 70, 70. Now, this is 2015, so it's going to be a little different. 
but Christian in America, 70.6%. Jewish, 1.9%. Muslim, 0.9%. That's higher today than that. That's a little over 2% today. Uh, unaffiliated, 22.8%. Don't know. Now, this group bothers me. Are you religious? I don't know. Did you get up this morning? I don't know. I don't know. So they don't know. And then atheists or agnostics, 3.2% of religion. There's religion in America. All right? But let's break this one down. Let's break that one down. Protestant. Oh, Christian. Oh, Christian. Protestant is 46.5%. 46.5%. Evangelical among them is 25.4%. And then underneath that, this even even evangelical, that includes Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Anglicans, the Adventists, uh, the Methodists, the Lutheran, the Restorationists, and the Disciples of Christ and Church of God. Now, these people, these people are basically Catholic like. You know where the, the, the Anglican, that's the British church, this is the American branch? Do you know where they came to be? How they came to be? Anybody know how they came to be? Well, why? Because they divorced or something with the king? King Henry VIII wanted a divorce. The Pope wouldn't give it to him. So what did he do? He fired the Archbishop of England, started his own church, and got a divorce. But they're really just Catholic life. The Adventists, what do you have to do to be saved in an Adventist church? Keep the law, especially the Sabbath, seventh, seventh day. Yeah. Methodism. Uh, Charles Wesley would roll over in his grave today if he saw what was happening in the Methodist church. Lutheranism, another one that really is just Catholic life in many ways. Restorationists, disciples of Christ, Church of God. Now, those people believe in order to be saved, you have to be water baptized. Is that the gospel? Is that salvation? No. So, so what we have here in this group of 25.4% of evangelicals, and that includes all of these people, this is dropping down really rapidly. Dropping down rapidly. Right? So, you have that. But under this, under Christian, you also have Catholic. 20.8%. Now I'm not, I don't want to I don't want to bad mouth the Catholics, but I'll pay, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, you know, a couple years ago, when I was a kid, you were a Christian or a Catholic. Oh. You remember that? Yes. You were a Christian or you were a Catholic. <laughs> now today, Catholicism really has been risen, has risen only to just another denomination. Under Christian. Uh, but 20.8% of these people are Roman Catholic. 1.6% are Mormons. Wow! When did the Mormons become Christian? Somewhere around the year 2020, 2016, 2012. When Mitt Romney ran for president, our good Christian historian David Barton Label him a Christian. And I wrote, you know, David Barton, the historian, of wall builders. I said, what in the world? What is your definition of a Christian? That was 2012, is that the election year? 
2012, I wrote it. What's your definition of a Christian? We're in 2022. I'm still waiting for the Lord. Oh. What? I, and this is my this is my thought. If you if you if you look at them and you say they're Christian, all right, you don't know what a Christian is. Now I question you. I question you. Uh, but so he declared he declared uh, Mitt Romney and Glenn Beck Christians. And, and so now, but I'm sure he didn't put them here. But 1.6 percent, but they're now Christian in America. Jehovah's Witnesses. When did they become Christian? They've always been a cult. So are they. But, but where, when did they become a Christian? So, so you can see here, you can begin to see how 34% of people, how Christians in America, would find a, a salvation in a faith other than their own. When you look at this, and you see all what, what Pew is looking at, and how watered down it is, and how confused it is, and how muddy it is, now you understand exactly where they're coming from. Exactly where they're coming from. Here, here's the definition that Pew sent them. This is a Christian, right here. This is the definition that they use. A Christian is defined as anyone who is not a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, or other world religion, is not a member of a religious cult, or has an association with the church and or attended services at least a few times a year. That's the definition that the Pew group sent me. Sent me in answering my question, what is your definition of a Christian? This is it. So this first line is tells me what they're not. Right? This first line tells me what they're not. And while well, they're not a member of a religious cult, or associated for a religious religious cult. Well, if you're not in a cult, you must be a Christian. Right? Or, or I like the last one, has an association with the church. What's that mean? What does that even mean? Membership or something. Well, if you have an association with the church, or or you attended services a few times a year. Like what? Christmas and Easter. Easter. And a wedding and a funeral. But but look, when you when you hear in America, and the reason I say this is when you hear America that America is a Christian nation, and that America and you hear it on the, you hear it on the news all the time on every news source you can think of, you'll hear America is 70, 75, 80 percent Christian. Well, if America is seventy or eighty percent Christian. Why bother? Right? Why bother? They're all Christians. We're wasting our time. Let's go deal with the heathens in Africa or somewhere. You know? um, but the fact of the matter is, America is a lost nation. A lost nation. Here in America, a Christian nation? Christian nation? Well, let's think about that for a moment. 315 million people up and down. 315 million people live in the United States. If you take those figures, if you take those figures, and you, you go to someone like the Barnett Group or a Christian uh, a Christian polling center, all right, 
you will find figures, depending upon the, the question that is asked, the polls fluctuate on how the question is asked. But when it comes to a, how many Christians we have, it actually fluctuates somewhere between... Where you get it? Anybody? Seven and ten percent. Now, I don't know about you, but for math purposes, it's a lot easier to go with ten. <laughs> because out of 315 million people, that makes the United States, let's get this change here, have about 31.5 million believe, true believers. Out of a nation of 315 million people, 31.5 of them truly know the Lord. Truly know the Lord. In fact, that's about the size of three states. This one's not here, but Michigan. <laughs> but really, I did that only because that and their population added up to about 31.5 million. But, but what I could have done is, you think if you take New York City, Chicago, L.A., you know, um, maybe Dallas or something like that, Miami, I'll bet you the 30 over 30 million people. Just in those three or four, six, five cities. You know? So when you stop and you think about it this way, look at this. What is that? That's a nation that's lost, and for you people, the whole state's gone. <laughs> but that leaves 283.5 million people without Christ. 283 million people without Christ. That makes America, that makes America lost. Okay. And unfortunately, for Walt Disney, all dogs don't go to hell. People need to hear the truth. They need to hear the gospel. They need the gospel. America is actually the third largest unreached nation in the world today. The third largest unreached nation in the world today, running only behind India and China. India and China. We are told that America is a Christian nation. America is not a Christian nation. America is a heathen nation. A heathen nation that desperately, desperately, desperately needs Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't say America is not a religious nation. I mean, drive around. There's churches on every other corner. But America is a heathen nation. A heathen nation. Without Christ. Without Christ. On their way to hell. How important is the gospel? Well, it's very important. And like we began, we need to rightly divide into the gospel. But, you know, let's just go back. What is the gospel? The gospel is those three items, correct? A belief, a faith in the death, a belief, a faith in the burial, a belief, a faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You all agree with that? 
Agree with that? That's the gospel. But what if we just lose one? What if we just lose one? What's that do to the gospel? Well, you don't really have the gospel anymore, do you? And, and, and you'll, you have, you know, go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. A couple years ago, well, I guess maybe it was last year, early on, and carried on through the summer months, I got into a discussion about the gospel in line. And, and the gospel, and it centered around Acts chapter 16 and verse 30, 31. Well, 30 and 31. So, you know, in Acts chapter 16, there, Paul and Silas are in the Philippian jail, correct? And, and they're down there. What, why are they there? For preaching the gospel. What are they doing while they're there? Preaching the gospel. And they're singing, all right? And everyone hears them. And then during the night, what happens? There's an earthquake, correct? The prison is opened up, and, and uh, the jailer is, is fearful. And he's fearful because... Those people are all charged to him. And if they escape, he dies. Okay. So he's fearful that they've, they've escaped. And the Apostle Paul yells out to them, Fear not, we're all here. Okay, None of us have left. We're all here. And the jailer came in to, to Paul, and, and he says in verse uh, 30, he says, and he brought them out and said, the jailer brings Paul and Silas out, and he says to him, what must I do to be what? Amen. Now, is that really the same question we had in Luke 18? Is it? Now, in Luke 18, when Jesus was asked, what must I do to inherit uh, a kingdom, eternal life or in the kingdom, Jesus told him what? Keep the law, and sell all that you have and give to the poor. That was the gospel that Jesus gave to you. Now you come to Acts chapter 16, and this man comes down and says, What must I do to be saved? And what did Paul tell him? Sell all that you have and give to the poor? No. Keep the law? No. What did he say? Believe for the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So our discussion that went on for several months on Facebook was the only thing a person needs to do to be saved is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's what it says. That's what it said. And, and my point was believe what? Just to say believe believe, believe what? Believe that Jesus was a good man? Believe in the law? Believe what? What? You have to believe. If you are too narrow-minded, you are you are driving people away. You don't people are, will never get saved if you are that way. And oh man, I was called all kinds of stuff. And, and, and it was a simple question. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe what? And, and don't you have to stop and ask yourself, what did Paul tell these people? What did Paul tell them? 
And, and the whole discussion was on verse 31 until we brought it to verse 32. Because you see, in verse 32, it says, And they spake unto him, that's Paul and Silas, they spake unto him what? The word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. See, if you go back to the first part, it would say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. So if you go with verse 31, not only is the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but if you do it, you're going to get your whole family saved. Well, isn't that nice? But if you go to verse 32, it's totally different. Not only did he preach to the jailer, but he also preached to who? Everybody else in the house. It's not, and the gospel isn't done by groups. People aren't saved by groups. People are saved by individuals. Individuals. And, and when you come to verse 32, and they, Paul and Silas, spake unto him the word of the Lord. Now, what do you think they told him? What do you think Paul told those people in Acts chapter 16? How that Christ for their sin, they were buried. Look, the first time, the first time the message of grace on the cross is given was given in, in Antioch by the Apostle Paul. Look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, you really have Paul's first recorded message. His first recorded message. And when you start in the beginning of the message, it reads a lot like Peter's on the day of Pentecost, in that they're both talking about who Jesus Christ was. Well, he was a man. So their history of Jesus is going to be very similar, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Until you come down to the cross. And at the cross, things change. And where Peter used the, the, the cross to condemn them, verse uh, 27. And they that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every uh, Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. That's what they did, was condemning Christ. Correct? Which is what Peter has done. And, and Peter says, and you, by wicked and cruel hands, you took and you crucified him. So Peter used the cross as a point of condemnation to the nation of Israel. All right? Look at what Paul said. And though they found no cause in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. Is there anything there condemning the people for what they did? No, it's just a matter of history, right? It's just a matter of fact. Here's the fact. This is what happened. And he doesn't point a finger of accusation and say, you, you did this, you did this. Here is, they did this. They did this. But let's continue. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who was his witness, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you, what? Glad tidings, good news. What's that? Paul's preaching the cross as what? Good news. Not bad news. Not condemnation. This is grace in action. Now, this is the grace of God. This is the good news. This is the gospel right here. And this is the first time it's ever presented in the scriptures. 
in that manner. But he's talking about his death, burial, and his resurrection, and it is glad tidings. It's good news. It's good news. That's the gospel. Romans 10, 9, and 10. You have him die and rose again. You can't have a death and a, and a resurrection without also having a burial. And then here, you have his death, burial, and his resurrection. And elsewhere, he talks about his death and his resurrection and, and so forth and burial. But that is the gospel. And is that what we, by faith, we put our faith and our trust in? And the, here, in Acts 13, Paul's presenting it. There's the gospel right there. And then a few chapters later, he's explaining the word of God to the Philippian jail. Now, what do you think he told him? I think he told him exactly what he told these people right here. That Christ died, was buried, and he rose again, and in that there's good news. In that there's glad tidings. And, and the Philippian jail is believed. But when we start taking away, just, just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel isn't just believing that Jesus died for my sin. I can die for your sin. It ain't going to do any good. But I can die for your sin. Uh, so we need to be very careful with that. When anything we take away detracts, that takes away from the threefold gospel leaves us without a gospel. Leaves us without a gospel. If you just talk about the burial. You know, we talked about the resurrection. Every one of those. The fact that Jesus died for our sins. All right? The fact that the, the Lord of God, Hebrews says, without the remission of sins, there, without, the, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. First of all, Christ had to die. Correct? He had to die. He had to shed his blood. And, and the whole thing, what they're looking at is, you go back to the whole Jewish, uh, the Old Testament, and everything that was there was, I don't think they knew it, but all of that was pointing towards Christ and what he would do on Calvary's cross. And so on the Day of Atonement, when they would bring the two goats in, and the high priest would recite the sins of Israel over the heads, he put his hands on those goats, over the heads of those goats, and, and uh, for the sin of Israel on the, on the previous year, the year that now has passed, that those goats were being made sin, right? And that sin, goat, that scapegoat, was then taken away. And he was bearing away their sin. The other goat was sacrificed. But they were bearing, bearing away that sin. And what you see in the burial is that he died for our sin, but he was also buried. Those sins were buried. They were taken away. And so you have that picture throughout the Old Testament in, in the various practices in the tabernacle and then later in the synagogue or in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Those were all there, but you have that. And then, of course, the last one is his resurrection. Because his resurrection was something that most of the Jewish people didn't even believe happened. People didn't come back from the dead. But he was raised again. But not only did he come back, contrary to what they were taught, he says he was raised again for our justification. Which is now a legal term. A legal term. And justification means just as if that sin that is now 
was paid for is now taken away just as if that sin never even existed. Never even existed. Never even existed. And you see, that's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where you have the cross and what God the Father was doing at the cross, and we'll talk about this again later, but going at the cross, and then, now I've lost my train Oh, okay. So, so he rose again. He was, and then in, in verse two, it's like verse twenty-one, verse twenty-one of chapter five. For he who knew no sin, knew no sin. What does knew no sin mean? He had no sin. It doesn't mean he didn't know what sin was. Um, so he who knew no sin, he had no sin, he was the spotless Lamb of God, as John was describing. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Correct? What's that mean? There on Calvary's cross, God the Father had his hand on the head of the Son. Now that's the Bible doesn't say that. But it does say he was imputing our trespasses unto him. So that's the doctrine of imputation. So you see the Father taking our sin and placing it on His Son, and His Son was becoming sin. His Son was being made sin. His Son was becoming me. His Son was becoming you. And His Son became our sin bearer. Correct? Our sin bearer. And, and so the Father put His hand on His Son. His Son becomes our sin bearer. And there then, as Philippians 2 says, he became obedient unto death. He became obedient unto death. Jesus Christ had to become obedient unto death. How did he become obedient unto death? Because he now became sin. And the wages of sin is what? Death. So did the cross kill Christ? No. I would offer as terrible as he was scourged that day. Terribly, as, a, as, as all that he went through, he could still be hanging there if he hadn't chosen to become obedient unto death, to bear our sin. And there, he bore our sin and became obedient unto death, and the word of God said he cried out, it is finished. And then it says, he yielded up the ghost. He yielded up the ghost, and, and he died, and, and he shed his blood. And when he died for our sin, he was buried, our sin was taken away, and the price of sin has fully been paid. And his resurrection, his victory over sin, death, and the grave guarantees, guarantees to us that the cause of sin is gone. And in Christ we have life. <laughs> I hope you edit that out. This is from Matthew, and of course, you know it's it's uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount. But I think there's an excellent principle here to go with what we're talking about. Enter ye in at the straight gate, the wide is the gate, the broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that hear 
that go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and the few there be that find it. We live in a world where the definition of Christian is very broad. It's very broad. And, and the idea here is broad is the way. Everybody, all dogs go to heaven. Broad is the way, but it's the way that leads to what? Destruction. Narrow, narrow, straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And I think that's an, that's an eternal principle. It's an eternal principle. <clears throat> there is a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The ways of death. The Apostle Paul says, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach what? Any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. How many gospels are there? Just one. One. And it's based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then people come along and they want to broaden the road. Well, just believe in Jesus. Just believe in Jesus. Uh, just believe Jesus died for you. That's okay. That's all right. That can be so. Or believe in God. I think the Bible says the devil believes in God. James chapter 2. Or just love Jesus and be baptized. Or, you know what, join a church and be faithful. Well, few would go along with that. Or just do good Christian work. Do good Christian work. Now listen, in all honesty, all honesty, there's nothing I would like more than to wake up in heaven someday and find out we all made it. We all made it. Wouldn't that be great? Honestly, wouldn't that be great? We all made it. But you know what? If I'm right, and they're wrong, where am I? I'm in heaven, correct? Where are they? If I'm wrong, and they're right, we all make But if I'm right, and they're wrong, they're all wrong. They're all wrong. This is the gospel. It isn't this plus this, or that, or anything else. It's just this. It's just that. And it's not just, like we talked in the beginning, it's not just the death, burial, and resurrection. It is putting our faith and our trust in each of those. Putting our faith, a deep-seated faith, a belief, a trust in that. In that. That's the gospel. Here's the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached unto you, uh, which also you have received, wherein you stand, by which you also... If you keep in memory that which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. Now, let's just talk about that for a couple minutes because we're almost done. Unless you have believed in vain. There's really, when it comes to this word vain, what does Paul mean, unless you have believed in vain? There's two schools of thought here. Vain means to no purpose or just empty. Um, no, there's nothing to it. Okay? Well, to me, that would be the person who just believes in the story, or just believes in the fact, or I mean, yeah, the historical fact. That's it. They're not really any 
faith, there's no real belief, there's no trust in, 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 in that. It's just all those three words, I believe that is true. Uh, okay. I think that's, that's, that's in vain. I don't think someone who just accepts the historical fact is true is saved. All right? And, and that could be in vain. The other thing is, and, and really a lot of, of, of evidence for this here, that they, they believe in vain because Christ didn't rise from the dead. So their faith is empty. It's, there's nothing there to put their faith in. And, and so there's that school of thought. And there's evidence for that because in verse chapter or 15, verse 5, through a good bulk of the rest of the chapter, Paul will prove the resurrection of Christ. And the witnesses to prove. So, so that is true. So I come down on the fact that I think both are true. Both are true. Unless you have believed to no purpose or emptiness. Uh, then, then, uh, what is the gospel? For I delivered unto you first that Paul that which I also was. Received. Where did Paul receive this? From the risen Christ. He didn't get it from man, neither was he taught it by man. Galatians chapter 1. I think this is part of that whole revelation that Paul received. Paul preaches the cross of Christ according to the revelation of the system. Peter and Paul preached the same cross, correct? But they preach it from two different points of view. Two different points of view. And, and he says here, I've received how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. That's that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the that's the very simple message that people need to hear. And if, if people believe that, if they truly believe that, believe what he has done for them, put their faith and their trust in that. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith. If they truly put their faith and their trust in that, then they're promised life. They're promised life. And, and uh, so that's the gospel that the world desperately needs to hear. And that's what we need to, that's what we need to be declaring. So let's, I'm going to, I think I can, well, we'll start here tomorrow night.